interesting experience this week uh, as I was studying in my sort of secret place where I study. Um, there was a convention going on, and it's called Comic-Con. Have you ever heard of Comic-Con? All right. So I know enough when I, when I uh, do go to my, my place to be alone. Often this place is completely empty. No one's there, and it's quiet, and I can really do the things with God that I want to do. Other times, we have a situation as we did. And so uh, I have these noise-canceling headphones, and I put those on, and I'll dial in a little bit of music and continue my study, and it, all I see is people moving. <laughs> but I asked the Lord, Lord, this is really strange. Here I am studying to minister the Word of God, and I'm watching star fighters go by, star troopers, and I'm watching Wonder Woman, and, and I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing all of these Disney characters and people taking photographs and all sorts of things going on. And I had to wonder, Lord, is there a reason? All the times I've studied and prayed here, I've never had this happen. And he said, yeah, I want you to tell my people that tomorrow, during the message, I am going to strip away everything from you that's pretense. Everything that has kept you from knowing God and his incredible love for you. You're not going to be wearing any more masks. You're not going to be having to hide or pretend to be anybody else than who you genuinely are. after today. God has a word for you that will just strip away all of that pretense. I want you to grab your Bibles. We're in a study of the book of Romans. And we're in chapter 3. We are going to read the entire chapter now. Chapter 3. I've entitled the series, Scandal of Grace, and this is part seven. This morning's message, I'm going to deal with innocence recovered. Starting in verse one of Romans chapter three, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charged that we are saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. 
None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God, and are, and it should, and all are, right, it, it's the same, it's a conjunction, and is a conjunction, so the previous thought and the previous subject would be included in the, the, the one we're now talking about. There is there n- no distinction, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, all have, say it, all have, which leaves how many out? Who's left out of all have sinned? Has everyone sinned? Now add the conjunction and are justified. Wouldn't it be correct to read that? And all are justified. All have sinned, but all have been justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's divine forbearance that he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God a God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. There's a gentleman that um, I've become familiar with over the last couple of years by the name of Baxter Kruger. Baxter is a theologian. He's a songwriter. He's also a avid author, author of many books, a professor, and a teacher personally tutored under T.F. Torrance, a Scottish theologian, one of the real greats. That's Baxter Kruger grew up under T.F. Torrance. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Undoing of Adam. I want to borrow a number of Baxter's thoughts here as we talk about these first eight verses. Let's, Let's return to verse one. 
Is there anything special about the Jew? Why are they given special privilege? And in verse 2, and we have a slide of this, the mirror translation says, everything only finds its relevance and value in the original intention of God realized by faith. Unless you go back to the beginning, which Jesus always did when challenged with questions, he would go back to the book of Genesis, back to the beginning, to give his address, his answer to those challenges. Unless you go back to the beginning, to God's original intention, it is impossible to understand the book of Romans. And indeed, it is impossible to understand chapter 3. In chapter 3, we do not begin with an argument about whether the Jews are righteous, whether the Gentiles are righteous, why did God give the law, how do we handle judgment and wrath, all of the things that in the first six parts of this series we have addressed. What we really are dealing with here is the original intention. Verse 2, mirror translation, let's go back to the original intention. What and how did God actually begin? Well, we're given to understand that there was this astonishing decision by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to include us in their shared circle of life. They, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are called the Trinity. It's not a word used in the Bible. We use it to simplify things. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, we can see it throughout Scripture how they made a decision in eternity past to include you and me in their shared circle of life. Then something happened. There was a fall. We read about that in the book of Genesis, of course. And we also come to know that there was a death of the Son of God, the Son of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son had to die. The question is, why did Jesus die? The death of Jesus Christ is part of a seamless movement that began in eternity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it reached fulfillment with the exaltation of the human race in the ascension of Jesus. Think about this. In eternity past... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are not three different people. We serve one God who expresses himself distinctly with three personalities. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decided in eternity past that they would make humans. And then humans fell. But God had a plan Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had already determined in the ages, eternity past, before the world was created, that Jesus would come, that Jesus would take on humanity, that he would die. So the death of Jesus is not a plan B. I need you to see that here if we're going to understand Romans chapter 3. The death of Jesus is not plan B. The death of Jesus was planned from eternity past. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agreed that this is what they would do. And Jesus committed himself to that. Why did he have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Because God loves us. 
with an unbending, undaunted love, a love that absolutely refuses to allow you and me to perish. Aren't you glad? For eternity, God has had his eye on you. For eternity, he knew your name before you were born. God marked you. For eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved you and had a plan for you to share the love and the fellowship that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have. And that plan was interrupted when Adam fell. So Jesus had to die, first of all, because God has a white, hot passion in his belly called love. And nothing, nothing will stop his love for you. Nothing will cause God to bend or be daunted in his pursuit of you. Nothing. He decided it in eternity past. He's going to have you in that circle of love that he shares with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Jesus died because of what the Bible calls sin. Sin is not a list of moral failures. Sin is a profound spiritual disease that needs healing. Sin is something that threatened the destruction of creation. It threatened God's eternal purpose for you and me. The love interest of the Trinity. And Jesus died because God the Father refused to give up his dreams for us. And because the only way for those dreams to be fulfilled in the context of sin was by recreating the human race through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's profound. Did you hear that? I want to read it again. Jesus died because God the Father refused to give up his dreams for us. Did you know God's been dreaming about you for eternity, before you were ever born, before you had a name? God marked you. God knew about you. God dreamed of having you in fellowship with himself. But that got interrupted. Jesus had to come. Jesus had to die because God refused to give up his dream for you, for me. And because it was the only way that that dream could be fulfilled, at least in the context of sin, was for Jesus to come and recreate the human race through his death and his resurrection. In Weiss' translation, I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 so that we can get an idea again of the importance of what Paul opens this great chapter with. What preeminence or advantage is there, therefore, which the Jew possesses? Or what profit is there in circumcision, much in every way? For first of all, because they were entrusted with the divine utterances of God. Baxter Kruger says, Israel was the womb of incarnation. I love that. What a truth. What a revelation. Israel was the womb of the incarnation. Keep in mind, 
from eternity past, God had his eye on you. The Trinity knows nothing but love and fellowship and other-mindedness, holiness, righteousness. And from eternity past, before you were born and before this whole world was created, God knew of your existence and planned, dreamed for you to join Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in wonderful fellowship, in perfection. But sin entered the earth through the decision that Adam made, and that threatened God's dream. But God so loves you, He so loves you and me, that He will pursue us no matter what, unbending, undaunted, God pursues us until His dream will come to pass. Ultimately, it will come to pass. And so Jesus died. He gave His life not to appease God's anger, but to fulfill God's dream. Oh, I don't know. You've got to listen. You've got to listen to the Scripture this morning. You've got to listen to the Word of the Lord. So many of us have been taught from Sunday school on that the reason Jesus came was to appease an angry God who was about to wipe you out had Jesus not come. In fact, many people have Jesus still trying to decide whether he's going to go through with it all in the garden. And that's not true. We can't go there today, but I need you to understand something. There is nothing about God's anger that was pointed at you for your sin. Nothing. Now, we've already looked at God's wrath in previous studies. We'll look at it again in studies to come. But I'm telling you, nothing in the heart and mind of God, in His love for you, has it out for you to destroy you, to judge you, to wipe you out, to give you an end where you will go to hell. Nothing in God's plan. Nothing in the, in the mind of God that dreams about you joining the Trinity in this love, this circle of love, has it out for you. So Jesus did not step in between the ogre called God and you, sinful you, to say, wait, Father, I'll pay the price. That decision was made before you were ever born. That decision was made before the earth was ever created. That decision to have you part of this trinity sharing in their circle of love was made before the universe was ever created. In eternity past, the trinity had decided already. But now, there was a plan. There was a plan for Jesus to come because of that white hot love in God's belly that he has for you. And because he knew this was the only way through death, burial, and resurrection that he could change humankind and redeem them back to God. So, for this whole plan to start, he chose a nation. Somebody said regarding verse 2 there where it says that Israel had the oracles of God. Somebody said they were God's librarians. <laughs> That's cute, but oh, it falls so far short of the revelation God wants us to have. Dear ones, Israel was not simply God's librarians. They were the womb of the incarnation of God's dream that he would have you with him and with the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
And he was going to do whatever it took, unbending, undaunting. He pursued us until he reconciled us to himself. God's answer to the fall of Adam was a fiery, passionate, no! 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 I will not let this destroy my dream. No, I am not going to let them go to hell and burn. No, I am not going to let them live a life under the foot of the enemy, Satan. No! And Jesus came. So God calls Abraham. Through Abraham, he establishes a nation. He begins a long and necessarily painful relationship with this nation. First, he gives the law through Moses to check the chaos of the fall and to help the Israelites begin to understand that there is a serious problem here. The law, however, was never the point. Get me, dear ones. The law was never the point. The point was God and Israel in relationship. The living God drawing near to fallen Adamic existence in the people of Israel. Adam fell, and everything that came out of his loins afterwards was in a fallen state. But God said, no, I will not let that continue. I'm going to pursue you. I will have you, as we decided from eternity past to be part of our circle of love and oneness and other-centeredness and joy and peace. I will pursue you. So he starts a nation called Israel, the womb the womb of the incarnation, and he starts pursuing you. He starts implementing his dream. He starts implementing the steps to see his dream realized. So he calls Israel Abraham. He calls Moses. He gives the law, but the law wasn't the point. He wanted a relationship with even this fallen Adamic creature. He wanted a relationship. Everything about God's love says relationship. Dear ones, get this. If you leave here with nothing but this truth, get this. Nothing about God's love for you is based on legalism or law or obedience. Nothing. Everything about God's love is based on relationship a relationship he pursues with such white-hot passion that he sent his own son to die so that you and I could be a part of this dream that the Trinity had of oneness with us. We have a slide, Doug, if you would. Number three, the calling of Israel was not about God dispensing accurate information about himself so that the Israelites could have a good theology. The calling of Israel was about God himself re-entering into contact, into living fellowship and personal relationship with fallen Adam. T.F. Torrance says, and I quote, Whereas Adam and Eve hid in the bushes from God, Israel was called into fellowship with God himself. You say, well, what about the law? What about the Ten Commandments? That was never God's original design. He gave that to put a a hold uh, on the chaos that was going on. Had Israel responded to God's fellowship and love? 
they would have never had to have had law. Think about this. Think about the natural progression of this, folks. What happens in society when a group of people simply will not adhere to proper other-centeredness, love, consideration of others, and doing the right thing? And they violate somebody else. What happens? We make a law, don't we? And what is that law for? To keep others from doing that same thing. To protect you, right? But that was not God's plan. That was not God's original design for us. His original design for us is that I would love you, fellowship you, want to be with you, enjoy your presence, long for you, because that's the kind of relationship I have with God. And so naturally I'm going to treat you that way because that's my relationship with God. Nothing about God's love needs to be legislated Nothing about God's love ever comes down to law and legalism. Again and again, Israel bolted for the door to run away. The goodness of God, the love, the joy of God were too much to bear. And like Adam and Eve, the Israelites tried to hide from the presence of the Lord. They tried to create a religion to keep God at a safe distance. They tried to be like the nations around them. But God would not let them go. So they created a religion and they came up with a lot of moral laws and ceremonies. It wasn't the plan of God originally. Remember our passage? Remember our scripture? That we need to go back to the original intent? You'll never understand the book of Romans until you understand God's original intent in Genesis. It's all there. Genesis is the seedbed of all revelation about the rest of the Bible. Without a proper understanding of Genesis, it's impossible to understand the rest of written Scripture. Impossible. Four, Doug, slide four. The remarkable thing about Israel's history is that here we have a people from the fallen world of Adam, a people estranged and scared out of their wits, thrown into a room with God himself. How many of you have ever read in the Old Covenant about the children of Israel shaking and being fearful of God when he would come down on the mountain? And it was there on the mountain that, of course, he delivered the... Ten Commandments, right? Which was never his original intent. Did you know there's nothing fearful in God at all? There's nothing fearful about his love, nothing fearful about his presence. Unless you're fallen Adam. Fallen Adam hid. Fallen Israel, just Adamic human beings, hid but dear ones, that's not because God's angry. It's not because God's mad at you. It's not because God's upset with you. It's not because in his presence you would be fried. I used to teach that. That's been my theology. If you get too close to God, he's going to fry you. You know? So in the Old Testament, we read how that Moses had to uh, put on a veil, right? You remember that? How he had to put on a veil because the glory was so great. Dear ones, that's not because God's an ogre. 
That's not because God's angry. That's not because God's mad. That's not because God's plan is to judge you or smash you like a bug or throw you into hell. It's because of the fallen Adamic humanity when it gets in the presence of God. Are you starting to see the dream? Are you starting to see the significance of Jesus coming? Jesus did not come because God was angry. Jesus did not come because of an afterthought. Jesus did not come as part B. Jesus coming and redeeming man was part of the plan from eternity past of God's great dream for you to enjoy the fellowship of the Trinity. So the real presence of God in the midst of fallen Israel created a stir that was to become the matrix of the incarnation itself. The Word of God was already on the road to becoming flesh, as Torrance says. Here's the revelation. Revelation is the unveiling of God Himself, not merely truths about God. How many of you have ever sat in a meeting, heard a truth about God that you've never heard before and said, oh man, that's heavy. That's a, that's a revelation. That's not a revelation. That's your mind opening up to truth. Revelation is the presence of God himself. If all this great knowledge you've been reading, listening to tapes, watching people on television, going and flitting from meeting to meeting that you think you're getting isn't leading you to the unveiled presence of God to where you enjoy Him more than you ever did and it makes you kinder and sweeter and more peaceful and more prosperous just because of His presence, then it isn't God's revelation. It isn't a revelation of God. Thus, the living Word of God finds its true fulfillment not clothing itself in human words and thoughts, but in translating itself into flesh as its existence. Thus, the living Word of God, be sure this is going on the recorder. Thus, the living Word of God finds its true fulfillment not only in clothing itself in human words and thoughts, but in translating itself into flesh and blood. Doug, this next slide. By its very nature, the revelation of God would not allow Israel to sweep her brokenness under the carpet. There could be no hiding, no denial, no religion. The real presence of God thus stirred up all manner of conflicts with Israel. For it, for, for it infallibly brought the fall of Adam to the surface in Israel's existence and created the flight of fights. The fight of flights. The fight of fights. <laughs> Next slide, Doug. To quote Baxter Kruger from his book, Adam, or excuse me, Jesus, the Undoing of Adam. And I quote, This conflict between God and Israel is nothing less than the prehistory of atonement and reconciliation. The first flashes of the impossible union between God and fallen humanity. For it was, for it was Israel, fallen Israel, in all of her alienation, who was summoned into the presence of the Lord and called to take real steps 
into fellowship with the true and living God. And you are the Israel of God today, called the church. And in all of our fallenness, in all of our humanity, Jesus comes into that. He dies. He pays the price. He's resurrected. And in that act, he recreates humanity. Verses 9 through 21 are simply another look at the universal guilt of man. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. I will simply tell you this. Today, similarly, religion requires outward obedience or observance of outward form and obedience to moral law code. Neither can give you right standing with God. Neither create relationship based on God's original intent for his people. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people. In the New Testament, the church. So there's no amount of law code that can bring you closer to God. No amount of observing acts of obedience that can bring you closer to God. None of it. So then Paul continues in verse 20 and 22. Let's look. And I'm reading from Weiss translation now, verse 20. Wherefore, and I believe there's a slide on this. Wherefore, out of works of the law, there shall not be justified any flesh in his sight. For through law is a full knowledge of sin. Let's stop there. Doug, you can bring the slide down. Have you ever approached something in your flesh that you knew you needed to deal with that wasn't pleasing to God or that was stopping you from having a healthy marriage or it was troubling you at work or it was causing you to think thoughts that stole your peace or whatever? And you came and you thought, you know, what I need to do, I need to get a handle on this. And so I've got to stop this. And I've got to not do this anymore. So I'm going to pray harder. And I'm going to do some fasting this week. And oh, I'm going to get back to my Bible reading. Anybody ever done something like that in response to something in your life that wasn't right? I've got to get rid of this. God is not pleased with this. So to deal with it, I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray harder and longer. Oh, I'm going to throw in some fasting. That always works, right? Throw in some fat. How many of you know you are in for one of the worst weeks you have ever had on the planet? You will be hungrier that week than you have ever been in your life. You will have more interruptions in your schedule interrupting your Bible reading than you have had in years. You'll probably read fewer passages of the Bible than you've ever read. Oh, and that thing you want to stop doing? It will intensify. If you're trying to stop certain, uh, let's say, thoughts of lust. <laughs> Woo! Look out. You are getting ready for a week filled with lust. You know why? Because the law is never the answer to the Adamic humanity that befell us all when Adam sinned. It's never the answer. 
Let's look at it. Let's go back. Verse 20, same slide, Doug. Wherefore, out of the works of the law, there shall not be justified any flesh in his sight. Read it aloud with me. Ready? Read. For though law is for through law is a full knowledge of sin. All you get by reading more of the law, more of your Bible, telling yourself, touch not, taste not, handle not, I can't, I shouldn't, I must not, people will think bad about me, is more of the same. You just become more aware of how fallen that Adamic nature is and how contrary it is to the fellowship of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We continue, Doug. But now, watch this, read it aloud with me, ready, read. But now, apart from the law, but now, read it again, apart from the, say it again, but now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been openly shown as in view, having witness borne to it by the law and the prophets, indeed, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is not a distinction. And thus we come to one of the greatest of all Bible principles, one of the greatest truths in all of the New Testament called righteousness and justification. And notice, it doesn't come by your obedience. It doesn't come by you being more aware and more diligent and more give more effort to touch not, taste not, handle not, I can't, I shouldn't. It comes by simple faith in what Christ did when he died. Christ did it already. He did it all. Israel was the womb to his incarnation, and then Jesus was born. And finally, God's answer from eternity past was in the earth. Oh, and by the way, you remember how that Satan tempted Jesus with the same things you and I are tempted with today? And Jesus stood. And he didn't stand as the Son of God in that power. He stood as a man under the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said, no, no, I will not give up on the dream that the Father and the Holy Spirit and I agreed on from eternity past. No, I will not give up on this wonderful plan to have all of humanity back with us in our presence, in the circle of our nature, our fellowship, our love. No, I will not. And he didn't give in. And he stood. And he became the righteousness. He became, for the first time since Adam, he walked in perfection and became righteousness in the earth. Now let me show you something. Turn in your Bibles. If you have your Bibles, because I don't think it's going to be on the screen. If you have your Bibles, please join me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five. Let's start in verse 
20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. Who knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you know you will never be more righteous than you are today? When you get to heaven, you will not be more righteous. When you meet Jesus face to face, he will not love you more. When you get to heaven, you will not be more right with God than you are right now. You became the righteousness of God. How? In Christ. That means your sin isn't a point with God. It's not a factor for God. Remember that when Adam fell, God's response wasn't, Ooh, that makes my blood boil, Adam. Now I'm going to find a way to wipe you out and everything that comes from your loins. I'm going to send it to hell unless it obeys me, unless it repents and turns, finds its way groveling back to me. Can you imagine a God like that? Can you imagine Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sitting in a meeting in eternity past and planning a destiny like that for you? That after you fell... God was going to, like an ogre, angry as blood boiling, squash you like a bug. Unless in your own effort you figure out a way to make it right. Verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I already told you sin is a disease. It is not God keeping a legal ledger. Listen to me, forgiveness is not about writing a legal ledger in order for you to appease God. Not writing it, but making it right. Forgiveness is not about appeasing God with your legal behavior. Rather, it's about healing. It's about what God already did to bring healing and reconciling the human existence to himself. He cut into the flesh and blood of humanity with his son and said, I will redeem you back to myself. And there we have verse 24. Look at it. Being justified freely by his grace. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. The word redemption means to deliver by paying a price. He not only purchased you in the market, he bought you out of the market and he loosed you By paying the price. And then verse 25. Whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. The word propitiation literally means mercy seat. In picture form, it's a picture of the mercy seat that was between the covering angels that covered the ark. There was a covering or a seat, a lid over the ark that was kept in the Jewish temple. 
And then there were covering cherubims that hovered over that seat. That's called the mercy seat. Jesus is our propitiation. Now, get this. This is not a view of an angry God and Jesus stepping in between God's wrath and the sinner. This is God executing a plan of the Trinity from the beginning. There is no thought in propitiation of, play, of placating a vengeful God, but of doing right by his holy law, and so making it possible for him to righteously show favor. And I love verse 3 back in our text. We're going to close with this. Doug, do we have verse 3? I think we do. Let me read it first, and then Doug has uh, uh, the mirror translation of that. So hold on to that, Doug. Not yet. Let me read this. This is just, I think this is Weiss' translation of verse 3. Watch this. Their unbelief will not render the faithfulness of God ineffectual, will it? Their unbelief will not render the faithfulness of God ineffectual, will it? Here's the mere translation, Doug. The question is, how does somebody's failure to believe God affect what God believes? Could their unbelief cancel God's faith? What we believe about God does not define him. God's faith defines us. Dear ones, even when you are unfaithful, even when you sin, even when you shun God, even when you resist his purpose, he says, no, I will not back off. I will not leave you to yourself. This was a plan of the Trinity from ages past to pursue you. I gave my son for you and I love you. And so I've given you redemption I am your propitiation, and I became sin so that you might become the very righteousness of God in Christ. You're not waiting to be forgiven. You are as forgiven now as you will ever be. When you sin tomorrow, it's already forgiven. When you sin next week, already taken care of, wiped out. Now, Paul said, well, so... Does that mean we can just sin so that God would be glorified in what he say? No. no. Never think that way. That's a worldly thought. And how, and how is it that Paul could preach such a strong message of righteousness and grace knowing that people, true Christians, that love God would not take advantage of it? Let me ask you, how many of you are in a relationship where after so many months, so many years of being in that relationship, the love, the joy, the peace, the interaction between you and that person has changed you. And you would not think of doing something that would violate their heart. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You that are married know that that's the kind of agreement that we make entering into marriage right okay so what's behind that when you married your spouse did you sit down and say okay uh sweetheart i need to let you know something can't you just imagine justice next morning sitting vince down and saying hey vince need you to know a few things 
You will not look at any other women, saith justice. <laughs> you will not think about any other women, saith justice. You will be home at a proper time and participate in dinner, saith justice. Of course she didn't. Why? Because there is a mutual trust in this relationship that something about the dynamic of being in fellowship will change my life to be what that person has invested in me. You better pay attention. You better pay attention. God has a relationship with you so devoid of law and legalism that he says, forget trying to be justified by works of the law. By the works of the law, no flesh. And by the way, he didn't say no person. He said no flesh, intentionally meaning nothing residual left over from that Adamic fall will be justified by you trying to appease God and please him with your obedience. He took care of it. And now he trusts the life in you. When he recreated you in the new birth, he recreated you and put a deposit in you and me. And he trusts that, that that's going to grow in you. It lives in you. It changes the way you think. It changes the things you desire. It changes who you want to be. And of all things, you're no longer running. You're no longer hiding like Adam and Eve. You're running towards him every day. That is the dream of God for you. And that's Romans chapter 3.